Well, God does indeed have a plan, and a very good one. In Genesis 12, we see part of that good plan. God called Abram, an old man who had no children, to follow him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the world shall be blessed. And God did just that. He provided a child for Abram and his wife. And through that family, God has blessed the entire world. And many years later, God anointed a simple shepherd boy to be king of Israel. And that king retained a heart after God in his own heart, even though he had riches more than he could ever imagine as a, as a humble shepherd. And he sought justice and peace for his people. And he honored God. And God established the line of David to be the ones that his people would follow in government. Your house and your kingdom shall be made forever to stand before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This too was carried out by God. And in Judah, as long as there was a king, it was from the line of David. As you read the Old Testament, you will see God's plan unfolding as you, are, as you journey through Hebrew history. In Genesis, you see God promising Abraham that he would be Abraham's lineage's God and that they would be his people. And then you see the insane ups and downs of the faithfulness and lack thereof of Israel through judges and kings. The prophets warn Israel to turn back to God because although he is patient, he is bringing justice. There are times of joy and there are times of intense heartbreak. All the while, God is unwrapping his plan from dawn to dusk of time like a brilliant composer weaves the symphonies. Melodies intertwine with harmonies and a snippet of a theme here and a foreshadowing of what will come in the fourth movement. Likewise, God weaves the mistakes and successes of his people wedded with the natural world and also with the lives of those who still hate him. It's a shame that most of what we study in history is, is focused on the battles of, and who won which, because that isn't all of history. And you see a beautiful picture of that in the Old Testament especially. Read the Old Testament and search for how the creativity of God explodes on the page in the Minor Prophets and see wisdom put flesh on the bones of narratives and laws. That's all part of the story of God. And sometimes, God's plan is to wade through war and defeat. In the 500s before Christ, the kingdom of Judah is completely destroyed by Babylon. Judah's best and brightest were taken and made to walk 800 miles to their new home where they were paraded before their captors. And in their new home, they were given new names, Babylonian names, to honor the gods of Babylon rather than Yahweh. And every part of their Judean heritage was intentionally stripped away. Yet, even during that time of complete destruction, God's plan was at work. And in fact, a very familiar verse was penned to bring hope and a clear picture of God's plan to those same Judeans 
who are being exiled and renamed. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. It's encouraging to know that God knows the plans that he has for us and that they are not plans for evil. It reflects the hopefulness that we have in Christ. No matter what happens, God is in control and he is sovereign. As we look forward to 2018, I want this verse to be nuzzled into your heart. I don't know what God has planned for this year, but I do hope that it was better than the context of which this verse was written. So let's pray. Father, you are you're glorious and sovereign and you control all things to, for your plan, for your plan for good. Lord, please teach us what that means and that we would not just hold on to, uh, to a promise that we like, but that we would see your entire promise here and that, that we would shape our lives because of that. Thank you for your word. And please guide me as I speak in your son's name. Amen. So around 600 BC, a prophet by the name of Habakkuk was deeply troubled by the injustice that he saw in Judah. Much earlier, after King Solomon died around 931 BC, the kingdom of Israel split into two different kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And Israel turned away from God very early and they never really seemed to have come back to him. And the kingdom of Israel met its effective end when Assyria conquered Samaria in 722 BC. However, Judah retained at least a nominal worship of God throughout their history. And sometimes Judah even had a good king that also feared God, although that was only about five out of 20. By the time Habakkuk wrote his book, the kingdom of Judah had all but completely forsaken God in any practical way. In 623, King Josiah stumbled across a forgotten copy of Deuteronomy, and he tried to institute a reform. But that reform didn't seem to have been as influential as Josiah would have liked. In fact, once Josiah died, his own son quickly forsook any hope of reform during his short three-month reign, and that reform quickly crumbled. It wasn't long after Josiah's death that that the prophet Habakkuk wrote this. And the book begins with a heart cry to God, pleading with him to bring justice in corrupt Judah. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for you and you will not hear? Oh, I cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Oh, how quickly the good work that Josiah did crumbled and vanished. The law was paralyzed and the wicked flourished. I'm not sure exactly what that looked like, but it must have been bad. So Habakkuk does what any good believer does, and he cries out to God, the only one who could really do anything about this evil. And he said, please do something about this injustice. Will you please do something? And God heard that cry. And he answered Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. 
wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a great work, a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Oh, God had an answer, all right, for the injustice that was being done in Judah. He was going to bring justice by the engines of a huge host of Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were a part uh, of, the, of southern Babylon, and they were fierce. Habakkuk described them this way. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves, and their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar, and they fly like an eagle, swift to, de- to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh, and they laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth to take it. Then they sweep like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their own God. Yes, their horses were fast, but they were best known for their siege tactics and their archers. They were masters of siege warfare, and that is exactly what brought Judah to justice. That's exactly what happened. In 597 BC, Babylon came around and besieged Jerusalem because King Jehoiakim had stopped sending the tribute that that he owed them. And they took the king, as well as the best and the brightest of the Judeans, off to Babylon in exile. And they set up Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, as king. And they were off. Now our text this morning, Jeremiah 29.11, was written right after this followed Jerusalem. The scholars and craftsmen, all the best, along with most of the treasures and the instruments of the temple were en route to Babylon and the city itself needed to rebuild. Could there have been a timelier message than I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope? This does beg the question though, God said that his plans were for welfare and not for evil, right? But as we just discussed, Judah had been defeated in a horrible siege and left crippled. Not only that, but this verse is specifically addressing the captives who are marching to Babylon. They were captives. How is that a plan for welfare? It seems more like a plan for evil. So what gives? I think we have to ask ourselves, what does welfare mean? When we think of the word welfare, we tend to think of it as, you know, personal well-being, right? If you type in welfare definition into Google, this, the first definition that pops up is this. The health, happiness, and fortunes of a person or group. But that certainly doesn't fit this context, does it? I mean, would God be honest in saying, my plans are for your health, happiness, and fortunes, so have fun in Babylon, In exile, I'm so sorry that you had to get there through losing a siege warfare. I don't think that would be it, right? That doesn't fit. So we have to look at what the word welfare actually means. So, if you look at what the Hebrew word for that is, the Hebrew word is shalom. And that comprehensively means peace, harmony, wholeness and completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. 
But even that definition doesn't, com- doesn't capture the vastness that shalom is meant to embody. We have no English word that directly means this. And it, it's a strange concept to us in America. In the book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin by author Cornelius Plantinga, he describes the Old Testament concept of shalom this way. The webbing forth, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied and the natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way it ought to be. So let's take a step back and look at the context of this beloved verse. I think it'll help you see a better picture of just what God is doing and the grand scheme of things and how that pertains to shalom. Backing up to verse 4 through 7, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare, or shalom, of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on behalf of its welfare, or shalom. And there you will find your welfare. So let's look at what immediately surrounds Jeremiah 29, 11. Here's the verse in its immediate context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place of Judah. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me And come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the peoples and all the places that I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place which I sent you into exile. Okay. So maybe our first thoughts about Jeremiah 29.11 were not complete. It's easy to see this verse in our devotional. I think that it's just promising good times for, for me and for our wealth and not for bad times. But that doesn't appear to be exactly what God or Jeremiah are referring to. Instead, think of it this way. Judah, my child, you know that you are my people And I am your God. So don't think that I will ever forsake you. My plan is for shalom in Judah and beyond your borders. And here is how this will play out for now. I'm sending you into Babylon. Live well and flourish in that city. And after 70 years, you will call out to me. And I will bring you back to Jerusalem where I will restore your shalom there. How hopeful. 
I can totally hear God using his dad voice here. He's basically telling you, look, children, you've been insanely bad. Yes, you brought all this punishment upon yourself. But don't think that I've forsaken you. I never could. It is going to be scary, but it is not hopeless. I still have a plan for you. In a little while, I will come for you after you look for me and everything will be okay in the end. How beautiful, how wonderful. Oh, what a loving father who is faithful to his people, even in the darkest of times. And then look at the people that these words were written to. They were certainly less than wonderful. See, at this point, worship of God was only a nominal thing to do in Judah. It really had no implications for the Judean life. It was, it was just a ritualistic thing to do. Not unlike how, um, how going to church has had very little impact on American people that we see today. People come on a Sunday in order to, I don't know, give homage to God. I, I really, I, I don't understand why some people come to church if it doesn't impact their lives at all. It doesn't make sense to me. And in the same way, the Judeans were doing the exact same thing, going to the temple and just doing a ritual. I think it's quite telling that the words that God used are, then you will call upon me. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. It seems to be that very few were actually seeking for God at all in, in uh, Jeremiah's time. Oh, sure. There were a few times where a king would come and they would say, hey, what does God want us to do, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah would tell them, and every time they would just do the complete opposite. <laughs> How frustrating is that? I don't think they were following after God. Yet, even though God's people were cold and probably couldn't have cared less what God wanted, God in his reckless love is so, that is so often unrequited. He loved them and he loved them fiercely. He took care of them. And when they were scattered about a, a vast empire miles away from home, he remained faithful to his covenants. Hallelujah. God's grace isn't dependent on our faithfulness or anything special that we think we do or are. Hallelujah. God is forever faithful kind, loving, and just. So, since God's plan is for shalom, that begs the question, what exactly is God's plan? Is this referring to things like, uh, who should I marry? Or, or, or maybe what job should I take? Or is this referring to how our life fits into a broader plan that God is carrying out throughout time? Or perhaps both. I suppose the easiest answer is that God's plan is both a big picture plan and a plan for how my life fits into that, including maybe things like, like career. But I wonder if the better answer is that God is more concerned with things like justice and obedience than whether I'm a businessman or a basket weaver. The whole reason that Judah was put into the situation was because there was an outcry against it, because the law was paralyzed. And the justice never went forth. And instead, wicked men surrounded the righteous as justice went out perverted. Just like Habakkuk wrote. So does God have a 
a plan for my personal life? I think he does. I'm sure he does. And I know that it would fit exactly into the grand plan that he has for all of us. But does God have a plan for what job I should take or what kind of car I should drive? And to an extent, yes. God certainly loves you and he provides for you. In fact, James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So follow after God while walking in wisdom. Yes, he will lead you like a good shepherd. That's exactly who he is. Proverbs 3, 6 says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. But also remember that there is a bigger plan, something much bigger than our personal decisions. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will come to you. God is doing something. His plan is much bigger than any career or even who I marry. God is bringing chaos back into order and establishing shalom in, in his entire kingdom. And how is that, that shalom going to be established? Well, let's see if Jeremiah tells us. By the time Jeremiah wrote chapter 33, which is about 10 or 11 years after 29 that we were looking at before, he is sitting under guard in the next appointed king's court while Jerusalem is under a year and a half siege that would ultimately destroy it. Jeremiah is seen as a traitor because he is telling, the, telling Judah that they should surrender to Babylon. And as he's in captivity, God spoke to Jeremiah with these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promises I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will, be, will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to offer grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall know, so he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests and my ministers. But as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister before me. So here, God spoke of a ruler that would come from the line of David and a priest that would, that would stand before God to intercede for his people forever. This was a very different ruler from the Judean kings that, uh, that had been here before. The people of Judah were in this terrible mess because the pride and corruption of their kings. Instead, this ruler would execute justice and righteousness for people of all walks of life. His rule would be so radical that they would give him a new title. The Lord is our righteousness. It's kind of a play on words because Zedekiah, the king at this time's name, meant Jehovah, or righteous is Jehovah. 
This is the ultimate hope that Jeremiah is pointing to. Notice in Jeremiah's language, he never implies that everything will be okay when, when we die and go to heaven, as if this life didn't matter. No, instead, Jeremiah points toward a future ruler who would finally fulfill the covenants and establish justice and righteousness throughout the earth. Now there would be shalom. In fact, shalom incarnate was born in a little city. Wise men who were likely Babylonian, which is really cool to me, came from the east because they saw his star. And that shalom incarnate grew up and taught about his kingdom. And then he paid the price for all of our sins and he, that he gave himself for us. Now that is a plan to give you future and a hope. Hallelujah, God knows what he is doing. I absolutely love the book of Jeremiah. This book beautifully shows the stubbornness of mankind and also the grace of God. We see God's chosen people turning away from God for centuries, and yet God and his incredible patience and grace sends prophets and good kings to teach and to steer his people back to him. And finally, after many pleas, many pleas from God and his prophets for his people to repent, God lifts up his hand and says, okay, Babylon, you may now take Judah. And God heard the outcry of people who were being treated unjustly by the Judeans, and he came to their rescue, riding through the ranks of the host of Babylon. And the second part I find so compelling is in Jeremiah is the faithfulness of God. And his faithfulness has no dependence on us and our own faithfulness or any merit that we have. In Jeremiah, we see almost the entire nation with uh, maybe the obvious, with maybe two people as an exception. There's, a, there's an Ethiopian who seems to help Jeremiah out and obviously a scribe too. And that's it. The, the entire city is against Jeremiah here. And despite that, God is still faithful to his covenants that he made before. He remained faithful to his covenant with Abraham that for the seed of Abraham would still be a nation separate and holy to God. And he was still faithful to his covenant with David for his righteous branch would come to fulfill that covenant. The covenant with Adam about who would come and bruise the head of the serpent also came much later with the same prophecy as the branch. And all of those would still come to pass even though Jerusalem was raised to the ground and left all but desolate. And even though royalty and commoner alike forsook God, he still sent them his word. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek, with, when you seek me with your entire heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you into exile. What a phenomenal God. And that promise seems to have stuck in the minds of those who were exiled. And there is a picture of God. Even as he's bringing justice to the unjust, he is working for their good. And he knows the plans that he has for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yes, God knows the plans he has for us. And he knows them intimately. Yes, they are plans for shalom and not for evil, but that doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen. Or if it does, that doesn't mean that God has forsaken us. On the contrary, God is working even through things like sorrow and loss. God is working out his plan, and it's a good one, a very good plan. Let's pray.